Well, welcome to Grace Fellowship Church. I'm glad that you're here. My name is Pastor Peter LaRufa, and I get to serve as the campus pastor of our Fort Thomas campus. Now, most Sundays we're meeting in three locations, right? We have a campus in Fort Thomas, we have one in Florence, we have one in Independence. But today is a very different day, right? We're living in very different times. We're literally meeting in hundreds of locations, and we're really glad that you tuned in. So whether you're a first-timer or a regular part of our church family, thanks for being a part of this Sunday morning service. Well, we've been digging into the book of Acts together as a church family, which is a fast-moving record of how the church and the message of the gospel spread like wildfire across the Roman Empire in just 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to stay right here in the book of Acts for this Sunday. But I want you to know I'm going to hit pause. And starting next week, we're going to launch a brand new sermon series that I hope will help me and you. We're going to try to answer this question. Can you trust God? And so we're going to jump into that next week. And I hope it will help you as you fight anxiety and choose to trust God. So we're going to dig into understanding what does it mean to trust God. But for today, here's what you're going to see in our passage. In this chapter, Luke, who's the author, Dr. Luke, hits pause on his whirlwind tour of tracking with Paul on his missionary journeys and how cities are being turned upside down by the message of the gospel and the way Christians are beginning to live in those cities. He hits pause because up until now, every message that he records has been a message to unbelievers. But he's going to allow us to listen in on a sermon and not just any sermon. It's a sermon that is a kind of last will and testament of the Apostle Paul as he pours out his heart to the elders at Ephesus, which is a group of believers he loves dearly. He did ministry there for three years. He knows them. He loves them. So turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And you follow along as I begin reading in verse 17. From Miletus... He sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to the Jews and to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. See now, I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed now, 
I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up. Speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And so now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Well, I don't know about you, but right now more than ever, I feel the need to say to you, my sweet church family, the word of the Lord. And you say back, that's right. Thanks be to God. If you didn't know what to say, say it now all together. Thanks be to God. Oh yeah, we've got Fox News. We've got constant updates. But oh, how we need God's word. And should thank God that we have his word in multiple translations in our language. Thanks be to God. So, what would it look like? What would it look like for us to be Christians who live unashamed and unafraid? In times like these. Well, here's the first thing I want you to get a hold of. Number one, when you're living unashamed and unafraid, you're willing to communicate more than just your personal testimony. Here's what I'm talking about. Look at what Paul's doing in verse 21. Look at verse 21 again in your Bible. Testifying to the Jews. In other words, he's giving a testimony. He's testifying There's something he's talking about and telling. Testifying to the Jews and to the Greeks. What? Repentance towards God. And faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, even though Paul tells us. Paul tells us in the book of Romans. What do people want? The Jews seek after a sign. They continually said, show us a sign. Show us a sign. And when he showed them one, they would just say, do another one. And when he showed them a really big one, they would say, do something bigger. Signs never satisfy the human heart. The Jews seek after signs, Paul said. And the Greeks, what do they want? Wisdom. Wow us with your wisdom. Wow us with the philosophical depth of what you're saying. Let us track with you with our human logic. Jews seek after a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. And Paul didn't give either group what they wanted. He didn't give them what they wanted. He gave them what they needed. The gospel. The gospel. Do you realize in verse 21 what Dr. Luke has done? In verse 21, Dr. Luke has given us 
the gospel. This, these are two signs, sides of the same gospel coin. Repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are two sides of the gospel coin. The simplicity. In other words, Dr. Luke is boiling it down and distilling for us the very essence and simplicity of our response to the gospel. It is repentance towards God. You've got to turn away from your sins and faith in Jesus Christ, not faith in anyone. There are not many roads that lead to God and you just choose one. Repentance towards God. You've got to repent. See yourself as a sinner. Turn away from your sins and then believe not just in anyone and anything, but in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's where I, why I'm making such a point of this. You say, Brad, what's the big deal? Because we live in a day that's all about stories, right? Your story. Tell your story. Stories are powerful. Everything has to be framed up in a story. Capture a story. Tell your story. Did Paul have a story? Oh, my goodness, you guys. Those of you that say, oh, God saved me when I was young. I don't have a powerful, amazing testimony. Paul is that guy, right? Who has a killer personal testimony. He was a murderer. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor of the church. He was on his way to Damascus with letters that gave him permission to persecute more Christians and put more people in jail. And God knocked him to the ground, blinded him with a light. And a voice that caused everyone else to tremble said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's his testimony. But as you read the book of Acts in Paul's three missionary journeys, he did not go around telling his story. He consistently told a better story, a better story, the gospel story, what God has done for us in his son, Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for our sins and rose again. The third day. And you must repent. As you track with Paul, you'll see him over and over talking about Christ dying on the cross. And God rose him from, raised him from the dead. And you must repent. You must repent. And you must believe in Jesus. Repent. Believe. He died. He rose. That's the message that Paul communicated. There's nothing wrong with starting with your story. If your story gets someone's attention, great. But you've got to tell more than your story. Tell the gospel story. Make sure you tell the gospel story and call people to repent, to turn away from what they're trusting in and to believe in Jesus Christ. But there's something else I want you to notice from this passage that characterizes people who live unashamed and unafraid. Number two, when you're unashamed and unafraid, you are willing to embrace all of God's word, even in the face of persecution and pushback. <clears throat> oh, listen to me, folks. It is our job to lift up God's word, all of it, who he is and what he says about life, all of it, not just parts of it. That's our job. That's our calling as Christians, even when you know, even when you know some of it's going to offend Someone. Here's what I want you to realize. God's word will always offend everyone 
everywhere at some point in their life and culture. Everyone, everywhere, at some point in their life and culture is going to be offended by God's word. If it's your goal as a Christian to not offend anyone, you're going to live your life serving as an editor. You will be editing and revising God's word and deciding which parts of it you can still share instead of publishing publishing and proclaiming God's word. You realize God hasn't called us to be his editor you see, oh, God just doesn't realize that won't fly in our culture today. Oh, that's offensive. Oh, you can't say that. God has not called us to edit or revise his word. He's called us to publish and proclaim it as it is. How much of it? Oh, say it again. All of it. Kids at home, in the living room, in the den, in the kitchen right now, stand to your feet. You have permission to interrupt the service. And I want you to say, how much of God's word? Oh, yell it again. All of it. God has still called us to be publishers and proclaimers, not editors of his word. Because this word, all of it, is needed. We need to know who God is and how he's called us to live. Have you ever noticed this? I know some of it will be offensive. And I know people have all kinds of ideas about God. But more than in any other subject, I find that with God and spiritual things, you'll hear people say things like this. I just like to think of God as. I just sort of believe that God is. I like to think of God as. As if we got nothing to go on. As if we just put this all together any way we want. We don't do that in other areas of life. But I hear people do it regarding God and spiritual things regularly. Listen to me. If you really want to know someone, you can't just believe whatever you want or what you'd like to think about them. If you really want to know someone, you have to find out what is true about them. And until you do, you don't really know them. You'll never truly know them. There will not be a closeness and an intimacy with them. Find out what's true about them. Let me illustrate it this way. It'd be like someone coming up to me, right? And saying, Brad, I love you, man. Oh, I love you. And I like to think of you. I just like to think of you as a German Catholic auto mechanic who lives in over the Rhine. That's when I love you, man. That makes me feel close to you. I, I like to think of you. Okay, you can do that. It's not against the law. I can't stop you. It's just not true. None of it. And so you will never really know me. Because here's the deal. Big niece, if you've ever wondered, this is an odd name. I'm usually the only one in the phone book wherever I live. Big niece, we came from Nova Scotia, not Germany. Which means we speak French just three generations ago. French. Because the name Bigny was actually Dubinier. Dubinier. Oh my goodness. Doesn't that sound suave and debonair? The kids, I know you're out of school. You got extra time. Here's your assignment. Look up the word. Not now. Finish the sermon. But then look up suave and debonair. Get your parents to help you. We're going to increase our vocabulary. Dubinier. Suave. And Deb, oh, but it gets better. Dubinier actually meant of the pastry bun. 
Huh? We're of the bond. We're people of the bond. Do bin yay. And I am so not mechanical at all. I get my wife to fix things at home. I can't do it. I'm not mechanical. My, my brain is that whole other side. I love to read. I love to write. I love to sing. I love to talk. I can't fix my own car, let alone fix yours. And I don't live in Ohio in over the Rhine. I live on the other side of the river in Fort Wright, Kentucky. Here's my point. If you want to know someone, then you have to find out what's true about them. Until you find out what's true about them, you will never really know them. The same thing holds true with God. He's not in a different category. Because it's God, we each get to think and shape it the way we want. He has revealed himself to us through his word so that we wouldn't wonder. So that we would know. And then he took on flesh and came into our world. Jesus Christ, the God-man, so that we could see him and know what he's like. You have to find out what is true about God. Or you will never really know God. But here's what we're up against. We got two things going against us as I point you to God's word. And as I say, we can't just decide what we want to think, what we want to believe. Two things going against us hard with this. We have a culture who has been continually, they always have, offended by God's truth and hostile towards God's truth. That's what you see in this passage that Paul highlights. But we have to hold on to God's truth because it's not optional. There's two verses that stand out in this passage of what it looks like when you hold on to all of God's word. Look at verse 20 again. Paul says, I kept back nothing that was helpful. Now, don't make the mistake saying, see there? There's some things that wouldn't be helpful, so he wasn't saying it. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying all of God's word is helpful. If he gave it to us, it's helpful. He knows we need it. And I didn't hold back any of it. I held back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. Skip down to verse 27. For I have not shunned to declare to you how much of the counsel of God? The whole counsel of God. In other words, Paul says, I didn't just try to give you the parts that I thought, oh, they're going to like this, so I'll go ahead and say that. This is going to be easy for them to get a hold of. This matches what they would already be thinking, and it won't be offensive. But I'm going to edit out other parts that I think, it's just not worth the trouble. It's not worth the upset. I don't want to offend people. Whole counsel of God's word. I didn't hold back anything that was helpful. And here's what you need to understand. Don't read your Bible and say, oh, but today it's so much harder. Oh, today it's so different. Folks, that's just not true. Paul was facing the same challenges that we face today regarding proclaiming the whole counsel of God's word. Because you realize That Paul was not in one city. Paul was not a local church pastor that spent 30 years in one city, one culture, with one people group. Paul was in Asia. Paul was in Europe. Paul was going from city to city, culture to culture. Three missionary journeys. Paul was bringing the message of 
the gospel and Jesus and the whole counsel of God's word and what he tells us to all kinds of cultures, all kinds of different cities filled with different people that believe different things that would be offended over different things. And he consistently stayed with the whole counsel of God's word. And what you find as you watch him and you find it today is that when you teach and publish or proclaim all of God's word, it will offend everyone, everywhere, at some point in their life and in their culture. That's the way it's always been. It's the way it still is today. I mean, think about it. What is it that you so often hear today if you're talking to somebody and the Bible comes up? So often what you'll hear is, oh, I can't believe in the Bible because I find parts of it so offensive to me. You know what you say back to that? Let me give you something to say back to that. Me too. If you're reading God's word, all of it, then surely as a human being, right? You're a human being. There's going to be places where you're like, oh, ah. That's not what I would think. That's not what I would do. Ooh, I'm struggling to reconcile myself and my thoughts with that. You say, me too. Me too. And then say this next. That's one of the reasons I believe the Bible is inspired by God. Instead of put together by a committee of people in one culture. You tracking with me? If a committee of people from one particular culture, had put together the Bible as a hoax, they would put it all together in a way that they like everything that's in there. But the Bible offends everyone, everywhere, at some point. Just not the same points. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. If you talk to a Muslim or someone from the Middle East, and you talk to them about this whole concept of forgiveness that is huge in the Bible, they are So offended. They cannot fathom how you would call them to forgive. It's outrageous to them. It's unacceptable to them. Why? Because they live in a culture, an honor and shame culture. That's huge. You don't forgive someone. You don't turn the other cheek. You don't refrain from paying back. You must pay them back. You must harm them. The honor of your family is at stake. Someone needs to die. Someone needs to be punished. There needs to be retaliation. It is a shame and honor culture. And so they reject and think, oh my goodness, no way. But when you talk to them about sexual purity and family, one husband, one wife, they're like, sure, yes. Because that's what they believe and practice in their culture. Now stay with me. It's the exact opposite here in America. When you talk to Americans about forgiveness, yes, it might sound radical initially, but they're not largely offended by it. They can go there. They like that. Yeah, that makes sense. You'll even see some of that in secular television shows and movies where someone will literally, I'm I'm shocked every time I see it, but I'm pleased. They'll use the word forgiveness. I need to ask you to forgive me or say, I'm sorry. There's this concept of making things right and we're okay with that. But when you talk to those same Americans about sexual purity and family, that it's one man with one woman in marriage who are the only ones God says should be sexually active. They're like, that's outrageous. That's oppressive. That's regressive. How could you expect us to believe that and practice that? God's word offends everyone Everywhere, 
at some point in their lives and culture. And it's one of the biggest, biggest reasons I believe it's inspired by God. And not a committee of men and women from one particular culture. And while we're on this subject, let me point something out. Do you realize that it's almost always secondary issues? Secondary issues that ignite a fresh round of persecution towards Christianity and Christians. If you look at church history, it is so often secondary issues. Here's what I mean. It's not the gospel itself. It's not Jesus Christ itself. In most cases, when a fresh round of persecution or hostility towards Christian erupts, it's related to one of our ethics, Christian ethics or morals that we're teaching from the Bible that is in direct opposition to how our culture wants to live and what people want to do with their own bodies. Persecutors don't usually say, you believe in Jesus Christ and the gospel as your salvation, I'm going to start persecuting you right now. No. I know there's some places, but that's not the majority. What usually is going on is you've bumped right up against and you're saying and proclaiming and holding to and promoting a, a ethic or a moral that is in direct opposition to how they want to live. And so they go after you. They go after you. Think about the heat that we're getting today as Christians in our culture. What are the hot issues today that have caused the culture to take aim at Christians again? Abortion. That a woman, they say, has the right, has the right to murder her unborn child at any point in the development of that child. Until it's outside of my body, it's not a person, and it's my body, it's my right. It's sexuality. That, that, that our sexuality can be expressed and experienced any way we want. What, whatever your urges are, whatever your desires are, then that's normal for you. It's wrong to oppress you and repress you with any morals, any ethics. And now, what? Gender. Gender. That is wrong. How could you say that a boy who's born with all the male reproductive organs and, or a girl who's born with female reproductive organs, how can you keep saying to them, you're a boy, you're a boy, you're a male, you're a female? That's oppressive. That's hate. Each person has the right to self-identify and decide who they want to be. 20 years ago, it would have been unfathomable to think that we'd be wrestling with this gender. Are you really a boy? Are you really a woman? Are you a male? Are you a female? And it's these issues, right? It's not largely our culture saying, you still believe in Jesus, you still follow Jesus, you still think he's your savior, we're gonna attack you. It's secondary issues as you hold to these, which is an expression of not just some of God's word, all of the whole counsel of God's word is what typically brings the heat, the heat. The reformer Martin Luther said this, if I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition Every portion of the truth of God, except that little point, which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking. I am not professing Christ. 
however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Folks, we've got Christians left and right flinching at the point of sexual purity because they don't want to take the heat. And they're just like, oh, all right, already. Somehow I've got to find a way to say the Bible doesn't really teach this anymore. We can't do that. We can't do that. Many of you probably know that John the Baptist was beheaded, right? John the Baptist was beheaded. Do you remember why? Do you remember why John the Baptist was beheaded? It's exactly what I'm talking about. John the Baptist had been proclaiming, he's coming, he's coming. Repent, the one's coming. There's one coming that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. There's one coming, coming, coming. It's when he looked, he had the courage to look at King Herod and say, it's not right for you to have your brother's wife. Oh, secondary issues. And Herod still respected John the Baptist to the point that he had put him in prison and really did not want to kill him. But on Herod's birthday, he had a big banquet and a party and he kind of got carried away with himself because Herodias, his wife, her daughter came in and danced and so thrilled everyone. He said, oh my goodness, I'll give you whatever you ask, up to half my kingdom, whatever you want. And she rolls out of the banquet, goes to her mother and says, what should I ask for? Oh my goodness, this woman didn't want more gold, didn't want jewels, didn't want... She said, oh my goodness, tell him I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. Folks, when you bump up against people's own personal lives and what they want to do and how they want to live, they will go after you. That's what she wanted. And the text actually says that Herod was exceedingly sorrowful. He didn't want to do it. But because he had made this promise in front of so many people, he did it. John the Baptist died for secondary issues. We cannot compromise and begin to filter God's word through what is most favorable and acceptable in the culture. But there's another problem that you see in this text. It's not just the world outside of us coming at us for holding to all of God's word. Here's what's so sad. But it's encouraging that it's not new. Because Paul's talking about it in Acts 20. The church has often, often had insiders, insiders who work just as hard to lead people away from God's truth. Look what Paul says in verse 30. That's what he's talking about in verse 30. Also from among yourselves. So there's wolves from the outside that'll come in, come after you. But even from among yourselves, you're going to have men rise up. From among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. The NIV says to distort the truth. The ESV says speaking twisted things. The greatest challenge we're going to face in the days ahead is not just persecution from the outside. It's the danger of seduction, seduction and deception on The inside. We're going to be tempted to water down God's word. To fit into the world and not feel so odd and not look so odd. It breaks my heart. How often I hear just 
Christians who say they love Jesus and are part of a church. Oh, Pastor Brad, everybody lives together now. Nobody waits for marriage for sex. What, what, you got to let go of that. Oh, if you're in a marriage and you're not happy, oh, just, just get a divorce. God wouldn't want you that unhappy. Really? That's not what my Bible says. It has not changed. So let me tell you what the real problem is. Here's the real problem, what's going on. We have epidemic numbers of Christians today who are no longer reading their Bibles. And their Christianity is very experiential and feeling-oriented and fluid and very much tied to what they feel, what they think, and what the culture is saying. And they just tweak it slightly to a Christian, quote, version of the same thing the world is doing. They're no longer reading their Bibles. Their Christianity, so-called, is so experiential and not very doctrinal at all. It's not tied to God's Word. We've got Christians listening to podcasts and skimming blogs, but they're not sitting down to carefully and quietly and slowly read God's Word. And so their Christianity is too often, here's what we're seeing that's happening now, it's tied, it's not tied to God's Word, They've attached their wagon to some social media Christian celebrity that's out there who has thousands, if not millions of followers and likes. But they don't know what the Bible teaches for themselves. They have just connected with this personality. I hope you realize we live in a day of of celebrity worship, even Christian celebrity worship. I hope you like me. I hope you feel close to me. I hope there's things about me that you feel encouraged by. But, oh, listen to me. I hope your faith and your understanding of Christianity is not tied to Brad Bigney in any way, but is tied to God's word. There's where you're understanding why you believe what you believe and think what you think. So if Brad Bigney goes off the rails, God forbid that it would happen. I'm asking God to help me finish well You don't have to abandon Christianity with me and say, oh my goodness, that so freaked me out. I'm sure it would freak many of you out. But I hope it would not lead to you abandoning Christianity because the basis of your Christianity had always been tied to and resting on God's word. You would pray for me. You would be sad for me. You would say, oh my goodness, wow, there goes another one. But you would keep following Jesus Christ. Keep believing what you believe because it wasn't based on me. It was based on God's word. Here's what I think is interesting. There are people, not even Christians, who predicted the day that we're living in. You realize that? That's so experiential and feeling oriented. Predicted it. And now it's not a prediction. It's a reality. These predictions have become realities. Neil Postman in his best-selling 1985 book, 35 years ago, folks, amusing ourselves to death, made this sobering prediction about the future. He said, quote, people will come to love and adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. People will come to love and adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. You understand what we're talking about? We've got so many people, including Christians, that do not have the capacity to sit and track 
with an argument or to think or to read carefully. They just skim blogs. They, they live on sound bites. It's all about how you make me feel, short videos, and everything is just very, but no longer have the capacity to actually think for themselves and to dig into God's word and to read it and to comprehend it and to move to the next paragraph or phrase and to put it together. People will love the technologies that undo their capacities to think. Christianity is a thinking religion, you guys. You must continue to exercise your mind just like we go to the gym and try to exercise our bodies and keep our heart rate up and do some cardio. Don't let your mind go. Don't lose the capacity to think for yourself. To think, to think, to think. You must read and you must read God's word. 35 years later, his prediction just rings rings true with the global internet and smartphones as people have stopped thinking carefully and critically. And if one of their favorite people online says it, they just believe it. And if that person walks away from it, so do they. Because they never knew why they believed what they believed. They just liked him, just liked her. I can relate to them. I feel like I know them. We have a culture of Christians today where their Christianity is no longer... They don't see truth as something fixed. It's very fluid. Truth is very fluid and experiential and can be shaped by your own feelings and the latest trends of culture. And here's what, here's what I'm seeing. Surely you're seeing it as well. It is almost in vogue today to, to declare loudly and broadly your deconversion story. Right? Are you reading what I'm reading? Significant Christians are just walking away from the faith. You st- People used to do that privately because there was some shame. But today it's like, oh, they're so authentic. They're so real. You need to proclaim that you no longer believe in Christianity and do it to all your listeners, all your podcasts. Make a video, stand there. And we've got Christians who are rattled by it more than they should be because they don't know why they believe what they believe. They just know he believed it, she believed it, And now they're saying they don't. I don't want that to be you. I don't want that to be us because there will be more of that. The Bible says that in the end times, people are going to walk away. There will be apostates. They will walk away. It doesn't mean they lost their salvation, you guys. It means they never had it to begin with. They talked the talk, but it was not real. They were not born again. And when the heat was on... Or their feelings began to feel very differently than parts of God's word. They decided it would be better to walk away from it altogether. And here's what what kills me. They love to give this parting shot. So many of them, as I read their blogs or watch the video, they'll give a parting shot about Christianity needs to be re-examined. Because it cannot stand up to scrutiny. Hey, let me give a shot back. I don't think it's Christianity that needs to stand up, that needs to be reexamined. It's been around a long time. What needs to be reexamined is the basis of their so-called faith because it was always way too experiential and not doctrinal. That's what needs to be reexamined. What about you? What's the basis of your faith? Why do you believe what you believe? Why do you have a confidence 
that Jesus is the only way? Why do you believe the sexual purity that you believe? Why do you believe what you believe about work or money or integrity or character or any issue under the sun? I hope it's because of what you know from God's word. God's word. Let me show you one more thing that I think characterizes Christians who are living unashamed and unafraid. Number three, when you're living unashamed and unafraid, you are willing to add tears to your truth. You're willing to add tears to your truth because that's what our Savior did. Listen, truth alone is not enough. God has called us to speak the truth in love. And And there are times, and it ought to be regular, that that love is so real. Oh, yeah, I hope truth is real to you. But that love is so real. You actually love this person that tears show up. You're moved on their behalf. Your heart is broken. You're brokenhearted for them. You're not just angry at them because they're not living according to God's word. You're brokenhearted over them. Because they're not living according to God's word. And you care for them. You love them like Jesus loves them. Here's what's noteworthy about our passage. Oh, our passage soars with courage, no doubt. This same passage sorrows with tears. This passage soars and sorrows. It's worth noting that there are a lot of tears in this chapter. There are a lot of tears in this chapter. Because remember, we're asking God to make us a generation of Christians, remember? Who have the courage to stand, but don't stop there. The confidence to speak up. We're not just silent, hoping they'll see how kind we are and figure the gospel out. They won't. Courage to stand, confidence to speak up. But don't fail to get to that third point. And a heart that's willing to sacrifice to see lost people come to Christ. Oh, listen, you won't be willing to sacrifice for someone until you love them. When love is there, you make sacrifices for them. Love, compassion, brokenhearted. Paul's got both truth and compassion. Paul is bold and brokenhearted. We need to be people who are both bold and brokenhearted. Just angry, screaming at them that they're not living according to God's word will not get it. And I don't want us to be those Christians. I don't want us to be that church family, whether online or in real time. Bold and brokenhearted. Look at what I'm talking about in this passage. Tears are mentioned no less than three times. Verse 19, with many tears. Verse 31, I didn't cease to warn everyone day and night with tears. Verse 37, then they all wept freely. Dr. Luke is talking about the tears of Paul in Acts chapter 20. But Dr. Luke talked about the tears of Jesus. Paul, Paul has tears and Paul sorrows because Paul is following our Savior. Our Savior had compassion For lost people. Yes he held to truth. And he sorrowed. He sorrowed over the messes. That he saw in people's lives. And over the messes that he saw in the cities. Dr. Luke tells us in Luke 19.41. As Jesus drew near. He saw the city. And wept over it. Wept over it. 
When you see the cities that we're living in today, your city, the neighborhoods around you, the people that you're meeting, the people that you work with, does it break your heart? Does it break your heart, the epidemic heroin and meth abuse? Does it break your heart, the number of unwed pregnancies, the number of children who are being abused, the poverty, the shattered families, the sexual abuse? Does it break your heart or does it just fill you with disdain and disgust? Oh my goodness, I hope you're filled with far more than disdain and disgust. I hope it's not, oh, those people, how can they? Jesus saw the cities and wept over them. Bold and broken. And for us to have bold and broken hearts, we're going to have to, we're going to have to know that God is with us as we head into this more and more dark and broken culture. So how do we know that God is with us? How do we know that God is with us and for us and is going to take care of us in such unsettling times? I want you to look at the final phrase in verse 28. That final phrase in verse 28. Because it's a life-changing transaction that Paul's talking about. That's being described. A life-changing transaction that took place in the past that changes how you live in the present. He's talking about the church, quote, which he purchased with his own blood. The church. Now, look at me. I hope you realize, and now more than ever, we've got some disadvantages because of the coronavirus and what we're experiencing right now. But oh my goodness, there's some real advantages going on right now. Today is one of those days where we're reminded, folks, the church is not a building. When he says the church, which he purchased with his own blood, he's not talking about that facility at Florence, that facility in Independence, that facility at Fort Thomas. Praise God, he's talking about you sitting in your living room, you kids on the couch right now or coloring at the table while I talk older person alone right now but God is with you as you listen single mom wondering how to work a job if you still have a job and help get homework done he he's talking about you the people of God adopted men and women not a building and he purchased you with his own blood if he would do that then He's going to take care of us now. He's with us now. He's with us now. He cares about you. He's not going to let you go. You are not alone. You are not abandoned. That's why the Apostle Paul said in Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? Then let me give you another assignment. We've all got some extra time. I can't go to the gym. You can't go to the gym. There's things we were doing we can't do. So this week... Open your Bible to Romans 8 and start in verse 1 if you want to know what things he's talking about. What shall we say to these things? I wish I could start reading in verse 1, but you can this week. Start in verse 1 and you'll know what things Paul's talking about. What shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who and what, including coronavirus, can be against us?
He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not also with him freely give us all things? If he would do that, then die on a cross for us while we were still sinners. Oh, oh, listen. Imagine what he'll do for you now as his adopted daughter, you, as his adopted son, you. He's going to give you everything you need. He's going to give you what you need for these times. Your confidence in God's care is not rooted on him giving you a vision or writing on the wall of your living room. Your confidence in God's care is rooted in the cross. If he did that then, he'll take care of us now. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And thank you for the church of Jesus Christ. There's so many things that are curtailed. There's so many things that are limited right now. But your word is not. Your spirit is not. And your church is still your church. We are scattered, yes. But we are still your children. And nothing can separate us from your love. Because it is rooted in Christ Jesus, our Savior, who purchased us with his own blood. Oh God, settle us. Oh God, help us. And oh God, use us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.